everyone, and welcome to the Career Navigators podcast. This is where we learn together how others experience their transition from academia into the world and what they're up to now. So if you, like me, want to set your compass for a journey outside of academia and you want to identify which non-academic voyage might be for you, welcome to the pod. And remember, even if our guest doesn't have the exact background, location or job you're interested in, try to keep an open mind. There's always something to learn. I'm your host, Nikki van Tijdingen-Bakker, and today I'm talking to Simone Burel, who did a PhD in linguistics before starting her own company. We discussed the skills a humanities PhD can bring to the table, how she started her own company from her living room, and we discussed the importance of female leadership. So let's get into it. Yeah, I'm happy to talk to you today and, and all your interesting experience that you have. So could you start off by telling all of us a little bit about your background? Um, what is your academic background exactly? Um, so actually, I started studying German studies, English studies and psychology at the University of Mannheim. Then um, I wanted to be a teacher when I started my studies. Um, and um, in, uh, yeah, in these days, um, I, um, I also uh, was a teacher for pupils. Um, I, I always had to earn money for myself and um, I was always doing like um, entrepreneur stuff, but I, I didn't know that I was really doing it. Uh, um, so this was something I realized um, later on. And then in my sixth semester, I went to London. I studied one semester abroad at Queen Mary University. I studied um, English literature. I was always interested in literature and in language. And language, this was um, my, um, yeah, my subject that I chose after this sixth semester when I did my master. And my master um, I did uh, in Heidelberg. So, so I moved back to Germany and went to the University of Heidelberg because Heidelberg was very famous for studying languages and um, this subject that I chose is named linguistics and linguistics is interested in analyzing the structure and the use of languages and I was especially interested in German language in political texts and in business texts and then after I finished my master's degree, I finished it with, um, with a very good grade. I, I knew that um, this was not enough and I, I didn't want to be a teacher anymore. I wanted to be a teacher at university. And so I, I knew, okay, I, I had to go into research. Um, and I applied for a scholarship because I needed money again. <laughs> One month after my graduation, I started my PhD. And I, I needed a topic because I wasn't really sure what to analyze. I knew I wanted to analyze a text and a lot, lot of texts. And I wanted to analyze the structure of these texts, the structure of the words, of the sentences. But I didn't know um, which text to analyze. And uh, actually, I wanted to, to analyze political songs of the student movements in the 60s in Germany. Very radical protest songs. But then um, I had a workshop again at the University of Mannheim and it was called Business Skills for Humanities. <laughs> quite, quite funny. And um, I got into contact with uh, annual reports and sustainability reports of 
on big companies. I had never read them before, but I thought, well, this is a really interesting type of text, also very long type of text. You know, they have more than about 300 pages and so on. And if you really want to read them um, in deep, you need a lot of time and, and, and a lot of attention. But I wanted to, to do my research on that. And so I decided, okay, um, I want to know more about these type of texts and I want to know more about big companies in Germany. And so my PhD was about these annual reports of the DAX 30 companies in Germany. And these are the 30 biggest companies in Germany, such as Adidas, uh, Siemens, or Bayersdorf, um, BMW, Mer um, uh, Daimler. So these are some of these 30 companies. And I was reading and analyzing their annual reports um, in a certain time period from, 2000, um, from 2008 to 2012. And I read more than 400, um, so, so, so in, in special case, 438 reports of these. And I, I just read them by, um, by, by myself and by my team. And I also used uh, a corpus linguistic tools. That means I used uh, computer tools Today, you would call them artificial intelligence tools that help me um, understanding these texts and also analyzing them. So this was my, my academic journey. Then I finished 2015 and then I went into classical business stuff. I'm, I'm sure we, we will talk about that later. And then I came back as a postdoc, but, but I will tell you more about that later on. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, because then did you start your own company straight out of your PhD? Not really straight out of my PhD. I finished my PhD in 2015, in January. I mean, I am from humanities and um, maybe you know that if you're um, from humanities, people say, well, you're not really, um, um, you're not really creating value and you will never earn money. And I wanted to show that this is not true, that we really have very important skills. And I wanted to make it in the banking sector because this is mostly the sector where all the business people go. And so after I finished my PhD, I applied in Frankfurt in an investment company and they were looking for someone who builds up their communication. And I thought, okay, this is perfect for me because I knew how to write and to, to speak in business because I had done my, my PhD about this topic three, three years long. And I had, had been on so many conferences. I had also published a lot of papers about that. So I was a really good researcher. And I thought, okay, you can do this there. And then I went there and I was, um, I was their first head of communication. Um, and I stayed there and I wrote their texts. Um, I wrote their press, um, uh, press articles. Um, I, 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 I wrote the text on their website. I did the internal communication, did the external communication, but I felt that this did not make me happy. And I felt this at a very early beginning because um, as a researcher, you have a certain understanding of how, how deep you want to go into a topic and you want to you want to look at different perspectives of that topic and you want to hear pro and cons. 
And this was not what I could fulfill in this job. Um, I had to write texts on a very basic level. Um, I had to communicate things that I did not like from an ethical pers perspective because I'm a, um, also ethically interested person. And so after half a year, um, I had a burnout. So this, this was a very uh, bad um, incident for me because uh, um, I was, of course, uh, totally um, fucked up, if you want to say it like that. But on the, other, uh, on the other hand, it was the best what could happen because I had to ask myself again, okay, what, what do you really want to do? And uh, in uh, uh, those days, um, I, um, I had to rethink, okay, what, what is the purpose of your life? What, uh, what are you interested in? And I have to admit, I am really interested in writing texts, analyzing texts, and telling people how to, um, how to, to make uh, the world better by using their language in also personal conversations. And so um, I, again, was on my own, and, and I've always loved working on my own. This was another thing that I really missed in being there in this company as a head of communication. Um, in, my, um, in my PhD time, um, I loved this, uh, this working on my own, writing on my own. And um, so, so I'm, I'm a person, I need a lot of uh, personal space and I need a lot of personal freedom. And so I decided then, okay, I just go and start writing texts. Um, and um, yes, looking what what happens. So, so I did not have like a business purpose or a business plan as a lot of startups have. I, I just did that. And so after half a year, um, when I uh, when I became better, um, the first people came that were interested in um, in my writings and analyzing text. So and this was the beginning of um, of my of my startup. That's great. That's a, that's a really fascinating story. So I, I have a couple of questions um, about what you just said. So one, one of the things is that you mentioned quite strongly that you had to communicate some, some things that you didn't quite agree with uh, on a, from a moral standpoint. Um, so a lot of people have this idea, right? They're in academia and it's this uh, free research utopia and once you go into industry or into a company it's all bad and they're just trying to make money could you give a, a bit of a, an example of what of what of what some of these things were that you had to communicate how you didn't agree with them and then how you dealt with that how you came to terms with that yourself um so one um one example is for ex uh, is uh for instance that uh I had to write uh, press articles and that I had to write how the company is going on, how the team is going on in this company. And of course, I, um, I knew that there, is, uh, that there is, of course, an outer image and an in inner image, that there is a gap. This is quite normal because it is what you call marketing. But I didn't want that gap to be so, uh, so huge. Um, the team was not really dealing well with each other. We had a lot of arguments. Um, so also the team culture was not I wanted uh, to be with as a, a humanist person um, because I believe in, in some values uh, that, um, that I also want to have when, when I am working. 
eight eight hours or more in uh, in a company and this is especially like freedom and no strong hierarchies um and no violent communication and some stuff like that and it was not fulfilled in this company in that i was working um and nevertheless i had to communicate how uh, in these press or on the website how well everything was going and how how great our um, yeah our managers were and this was just not true and I had a big problem um, communicating this and of course I also started making trouble in the company with talking to a lot of people I said well okay we can do this in another kind I also wanted to I uh, also wanted to introduce and um, a strategy for internal communication or something what you would call a corporate culture but um, in those days uh, the managers and our ceo they were not really interested in these ideas they had their idea of how the company is going or, or how the company um, shall develop and i had my ideas and we had a lot of arguments and i felt okay um i have a strong um, vision of how this company should work or how this this communication should work and it does not fit uh, anymore to this what uh, the CEO and the rest of the company do, does and uh, this this caused a very strong pain um, in myself and, and I just I just felt that my life was too um, yet yeah, for me to too valuable for being somewhere uh, I, I really did not want to be and uh, for, for me personally the work that I'm doing and the values that I'm um, that, 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 that I'm reaching for and so I decided because I really felt bad and then I, I also felt physically bad um, I, um, I, I had pain in my body everywhere so, so everything showed me that I just did not want to go there anymore and um, I felt much better when I just quitted my job and said, okay, um, it's not fitting anymore. We have different ideas of how the company is, is working. And then after two weeks, um, I quitted this and uh, it got better. Yeah. I think that, that we all to some degree can relate to that sort of feeling, but then of course you weren't happy while you were working there. And you even mentioned that you, you had a severe burnout, um, but at this point in time, do you think that having this negative experience helped you reflect and where did that process start for you to help reflect on, on what you did want to do? Because it's always easy to, to determine what you don't want to do at some point, but then it's hard to figure out what you do want to do. Exactly. Um, and I am in this burnout that was in summer 2000, um, 2015. So, so I sensed in a very early stage um, uh, at this company that I didn't want to be there anymore. So I just worked there for half a year. So I'm very happy that it came so early. And uh, no, I did not know what to do then. I just knew what I did not want. And this means I did not want to work anymore for any authority telling me what to do. I did not want to work anymore in such a kind of team. I just wanted, I, uh, I just knew I wanted to work on my own. This is what I knew. And I knew I wanted to, to write texts. And I also knew that I did not want any, anyone to tell me what to do and how to write the texts and to write things that are not true or like 
put, put a certain perspective on it. So I wanted this, this very strong freedom that I am the one who is, um, who is like guiding my own work in all perspectives, like being my own CEO. But, 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 I, but I didn't know at this time that this is a very strong entrepreneurial perspective. I just knew that it was me and I, I had to do this. And then um, the things that happened from this summer in 2015 um, were more coming from the outer world. Um, I, I did not like call people and say, hey, now I'm opening a business, please work with me. Um, I was just sitting um, there in my, um, in my little, uh, little flat because I did not have an office or something at the, at the beginning. And um, I was just like talking to people, meet, meeting people because something that I have always done is like um, I have talked about what I was doing, um, what I was doing research on. And then I, I told people when I met them for, for business lunches, I didn't know that these were business lunches those days. Um, I, just, I just met them and, and told them, oh, okay, now today um, I'm, analyzing, um, I'm analyzing this text. Oh, there was um, a very interesting article about this company. And I, I have seen there are a lot of uh, strong words that refer that actually come from war and you should not use them because this is um, getting a very um, a very brutal perspective. And I, I just told people such such little things about texts and they got really interested. And so um, it happened that people were asking me, oh, can you do our homepage texts? We, we don't reach our customers and you are really good with texts, so do them. And so I did for a very little money because I needed money, of course, I did not have money anymore. Um, um, I did those texts and I, um, I, for about like 800 euros, um, that's not really much for, um, for writing homepage texts, but it was okay for me in the first two months. And then Siemens came to me because Siemens, um, had heard, um, about my dissertation. It was a very good dissertation. Um, and, um, I, um, I had uh, the luck that I met one of these guys uh, from, from Siemens, um, while I was doing sports, because I was running a um, marathon <laughs> in 2014. And I also told him, oh, well, huh, this was so funny. I, I did an um, analysis of the annual report of Siemens in my PhD, in my thesis. And he was really interested and said, oh, okay, this is interesting. Um, maybe you can also do something with our customer statements, because we want to know what they really think. And um, I was always a very brave person, also kind of optimist person. I said, okay, of course, when I can do these kind of texts, I can also do your customer statements. And so um, it was for me like more like a research paper. And I said, yeah, I can do this. I, I cannot tell you what the result's going to be, but we will try and we'll find, um, we, will, we will get some findings. And so this was the first project that I sold um, for um, about uh, 10,000 euros. For me, very big project um, those days. Uh, and of course, this became my first great reference. And this was also the event that I realized that I had some skills people were willing to pay for. And other people would not um, would not uh, um, have these skills, like people who had studied economics or people who had studied other kind of um, other kind of subjects. But this was something very special that linguistics could offer, and that it also really helped the customer because I, with my techniques, 
Um, I told you um, it is a combination of classical hermeneutic reading and from computer sciences with these techniques, Siemens uh, in the end had um, a perspective of how the customers um, saw Siemens as a company and I called it image analysis. And um, I gave them a list of words that were, um, that were useful to use them in their customer communication because it um, helped get this image that the customer were wishing for. And I also told them, okay, these words you should not use like negative words and I give, gave them a very strong strategic um, communication uh, idea that they did not have had before. Wow, that, that's really interesting because obviously I don't have a humanities background so and I think uh, like I mentioned to you before, I think humanities are very often um, struggling a lot with how to translate their their skills, the skills that they learned in academia and in their PhD into, you know, the real world almost, so to say. And um, so what do you think are, apart from really the technical skills like reading texts and analyzing those what are some of the skills you think that you learned in your PhD that can be easily translated, not only in your job specifically, but just in the job market in general for a humanities PhD? Um, I think the biggest and the most important skill is, um, is managing knowledge. Because for, for humanities or for, for a person who has studied a humanities subject, it's quite, um, it's quite normal to be stuck into a situation or also a context um, that this person doesn't know. So for example, you, you're working um, in a hospital and you have to write a text about, um, about the new cancer treatment in this hospital. And the person who, who writes this text has no idea what um, um, what so, so this person is no uh, medical person. It's no um, biologist. It is no person who has a, any idea of how cancer research works. But this person has a very very strong knowledge structuring backgrounds, and this means you you learn how how persons speak in a certain area, and um, they are reading like four or five documents about cancer research and they sense um, when they read the words and when they read these these knowledge structures they sense how uh, they sense how the text is structured and then by by sensing this this, this structures they understand the topic and then afterwards they can talk in this language this comes very close to the language that a cancer researcher is talking. So this is how the classical press works because ev almost everywhere when you have someone who's doing the press, the person is never never an expert on this topic, but um, can use the language of this topic and uh, the, the structures of this topic. And this, this is what is called um, knowledge structuring. And here the humanities are really, really strong. And this is a very big asset today, especially in an online media um, or also um, in, in the fields now. We are working as a company. Um, we have to deal with, uh, with the topics such as, um, such as CO2 emissions. 
when we write about them in sustainability reports. So I'm not an expert um, when it comes to calculating CO2 um, emissions, but, uh, but I can understand how this knowledge around this topic works and I know how I can use the words to transfer this knowledge. Um, and so I would say this knowledge uh, structuring and how to transfer one expert knowledge in another, um, in another domain and also accessing it, making it accessible for a broader audience, this is a very big skill of the humanities. But most of the um, people who have studied uh, this, this subject or one of the subjects in that area, and this is uh, very sad, they don't know that they have this knowledge and that is a really, really valuable knowledge. Right. So now they know. And it's also a bit terrifying for people like me, because that means that anyone could replace me in, in writing proper scientific text. <laughs> no, not, 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 not scientific text, but, but, but like a scientific text in a light version. Yeah. Um, yeah explaining to other, other people maybe what, what you do in a written context, but also in oral contexts. And uh, these people, they, they do not uh, only work in, uh, in uh, research, they, they also work in politics, for example. Yeah? So uh, they, they, they work, for example, in ministries, and then they, they tell the broader audience what some special group, some expert group has found out. And uh, it always goes about, um, finding a perspective on this information that the other person understands. And um, in uh, linguistics, that's where I'm from, we, we call this on the one hand expert knowledge and on the other hand broader knowledge. And I cannot use the same words for this. And for example, for people from the um, from uh, from a background of uh, of classical science, such as like a biologist or someone who is uh, a um, PhD in physics or in chemistry, for them it's sometimes really really hard to find other words besides those they use in their research paper, and that is uh, this is uh, problematic because no one understands them really what what they want to, and they have. A very very broad expert knowledge, but for them it's much harder um, to to translate it into into broader knowledge to the public. So they they need they need us they need the human uh, the humanities people for translating uh, their expert knowledge. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. I would say that at least bi uh, biological scientists have a lot of problems with communicating their science to the public. And there are more and more initiatives to actually train people in this um, in this sense, but it's not always uh, very obvious for, for some of us, I have to say. Um, okay, and then I have a question about the, you mentioned that you had some initial contacts and some uh, business lunches that you didn't realize were business lunches initially, <laughs> um, before before you actually had some more experience how do you make how did you make those initial contacts and and do you think that any extracurricular activities like you mentioned the marathon do you think that helped in in shaping these contacts so putting your gaze outwards rather than really just focusing on your science so to say yeah absolutely and this is something that that helped me a lot 
Um, I already told you um, already during my PhD, I was very active on conferences. Um, I, I did publish a lot of articles. So I had a great network of people who had already worked with me or I had already um, worked for um, and uh, who needed to do me a favor or whom I, I needed to do a favor. So I had already shaped my network and the other people from my, uh, my research group, they didn't have these context because they mostly stayed in, uh, in, in, in our little, uh, um, I, I call it lab now, it's not really a lab because in humanities you mostly work on your own, you don't have real research groups who just come together um, every two weeks um, for two hours and then we talk about what we have done in those uh, two, two weeks and then again everyone goes back to their office and is alone with their books and their, their computer. So, so it's not really like team working. Everyone is used working very much on, on their own. And, um, but, but I was not um, working in the institute directly. Um, I had a scholarship from, um, from one uh, political institution. And so this, this also helped me because I was also always like an external person. I was not really into this institute. I was not um, my professor. He, he was not my, my manager or, or my, 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 my CEO. Uh, he was more like my, my academic um, peer who I was talking to um, when I wanted. I, I didn't need to uh, because um, I, I got the money from, from, this political, uh, from this political institution. And um, I was fine with that. And, and so this gave me also very big freedom to, to go where I want and uh, to, to speak um, to whom I want, to publish where I want, um, to give talks um, in many, many cities. Um, I, I, I went to Austria, I went to Switzerland, I went to the Netherlands. So I, also, I was also active like um, in, in other countries, not just in Germany. This helped me a lot because, of course, people, they, they got to know afterwards um, that I was not into academia anymore. And they always saw me as a role model from the beginning on because this is not very common in, if you're in humanities that you leave the humanities and that you are a successful entrepreneur afterwards. Um, I'm still the only person. I think there is another um, um, startup uh, from humanities um, somewhere in Freiburg in Tübingen but um, is very rare on the market and so um, they, those people they also contacted me and uh, these network structures uh, they helped me a lot and of course I was also and you, you, you managed that uh, you mentioned that um, I was in, in this marathon group where I met this Siemens guy this was just a lucky incidents the rest of the people I met here um, in, in Mannheim because um, Mannheim is quite a small town, just have 300,000 inhabitants, and it's not, it's not so huge as Berlin. But Mannheim also has a very, very strong startup ecosystem. And so, um, yes, when I when I realized I, I I had these um, I had these abilities, and I was really something like uh, one rare species. Um, that and I got very strategic. Then I contacted these people who were in the positions I wanted to meet. And so then, yes, I, I, I was very strategic and I, I, I met a lot of people for business lunch. I told them about my text that I was writing. I was offering talks at the universities. I was offering talks for other 
um, institutions and also for free because I knew okay people would would uh, uh, would book them when when they were when they were free and then I had like uh, the chance for um, for a paid project afterwards I also um, I also wrote to a lot of magazines that uh, business magazines to publish my research of course I had to rewrite it that they understood it because my 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 actual um, my actual PhD um, paper so, so in humanities we don't have um, papers um, we have a, a, a huge monograph my, 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 my PhD is more than thousand pages big yeah so I had to to shorten it and to to communicate it in a way that other people understand and so yes I sent them to a lot of business um, uh, to a lot of uh, business magazines and then people were also interested because they they didn't they, they could not believe there's someone from linguistics doing this okay interesting I've never heard that and so they called me um, and they were already like in the first year some TV teams, some television teams, some radio teams, and I did not have an office, I told you. So they came into my flat and we just made that on my couch. And um, so I saved a lot of costs. I, I just started having an office in my third year. Well, that's one way to do it. And it's true, if you want to save costs, then just stay in, stay in your flat. <laughs> yes, it's a very, very cost, uh, it's, it's a very low cost approach that I was, um, that 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 I uh, that, that I chose for me, and um, in the second year, because we are already talking now how I developed the second year, I had the first interns because my former students they also got to know okay now she's doing this this very interesting, um, and uh, they wanted to work with me, and so I had my first two employees in the second year, but still I didn't have an office because I found it's not necessary and also wanted to to uh, yeah to, to do something else this is uh, like uh, um, yeah like a free culture some people can work where they want and when they want and this was uh, quite good for for me in those days but then the third year um, there were um, yeah large customers that we were working with and of course I felt the pressure they wanted us to have an office and me to be more representatives and so um, I chose an office in the city of Mannheim and um, yeah the next employees came so the team grew in the fourth year we um, we were like six um, people then and more and more people wrote to us from whole Germany also linguists that they wanted to work with us or also go into freelance position that um, yeah, actually, we didn't have the financial funding for uh, for being the employer. So the interest from the side of the employees is very, very huge. Hmm. And so now that you told us a little bit about how your how your business grew, uh, did you get any initial funding, or did you bootstrap everything and at some point started making enough money to just continue from there? I, I never, I never wanted external funding. Um, I, I have had um, three offers for external fundings, but I never wanted to because I knew um, then I had to give power to someone else. Um, I had to, um, I had to give parts of my enterprise um, of my company to someone else. I, I never wanted that, and so I always stuck to this uh, approach, very slow 
growth, organic growth and bootstrap everything by myself. And um, when, I, when I look back, um, I, I think it was, um, it was a good, um, it was a good uh, approach for us because now after five years we are still on the market now we are 10 employees we've got big rooms we've got big customers and other um, other startups are the people that started with me who um yeah who had like external investors or who had other access to capital they are not on the market anymore because they um yeah got into trouble with uh, with uh, people um they who wanted of course um, also like shapen the business and for me it was always clear i am the one who shapens uh, the business and i'm the one who is doing the strategic decisions and for this freedom um i pay and so it was clear we grow um more slowly but we grow more sustainable yeah that's fair enough if you have a headstrong ceo like yourself then uh... I'm sure that will work out one way or another. <laughs> yes, and and and, and also I never, I never I never saw the need for because um I uh, I mean we have quite low costs. Um, of course, we have the office, we have got the employees, but we don't have um, like very um, very expensive machines or expensive laboratories or something that we have to pay. So we never need these uh, these millions of um, of euros or, or dollars. And um, I don't believe in this approach because it um, it boosts up a business that is not really existing on the material side. And you also need time to grow into this you, um, into into this and um, I, I have known a lot of people who were not able to handle these large amounts of money they were suddenly confronted with and this also gets into troubles of uh, in relation to power with external investors and with the internal strategies and so um, I do strongly not believe in it. That's fair enough I think. So could you tell us a little bit about what kind of what kind of projects you work on now or not maybe the ones that are in progress because I don't know how sensitive that is but some of the recently finished projects what what are you focusing the business on right now So um we've uh, put um um we've put our strategy um in uh, three main focus fields um because we have seen that those are the the fields that are very innovative and they are also um, related to language where we can offer um, offer a big business value the the first focus field is sustainability this means we offer sustainability reports we have done sustainability um, reports for some big insurance companies are also for the city of Mannheim and uh, the customers work with us. They can just like give us their documentations and we work as a full service agency for them. This means we make the analysis, we make the wording for the CSR reports. We also um, automatize these CSR reports if they want. And uh, the second focus field in which we work is the focus field of gender and language. Um, we have a known brand which is working in this field. This is called Dr. Femme Fatal. <laughs> and we work for many universities in, in Germany. 
they um, they book us when they need help with their texts that are not gender correct and not gender sensitive. So, for example, they book us for job uh, postings. They book us for other documentations. They book us for workshops. Um, we we give coachings in this um, in this field, and we have an own digital career coaching. It's it's a call. It's called uh, Fatal Fatal University. This is a career coaching for female academics um, in their postdoc or also in their PhD time um, to to go these career they want to and to to uh, to master the challenges um, during their career. This is the second uh, the second field we are working in. And this the third field. This is quite new. We we just established it um, in 2020. This is working with chatbots. Because um, a lot of institutions they they need these uh, these chatbots and they 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 can program it or they have already programmed it, but the the use of the language in these chatbots is quite tricky because you need a language that is accessible or like understandable for a customer or like a citizen who chats with this chatbot. And um, so we write and we analyze uh, the language and uh, ex um, give access to the customer. These are our three large fields that we, we are working now on with a team of 10 persons. And we have got a, a second CEO who has entered our, um, our business in, uh, in May. Um, it's, my, um, it's my partner. And uh, he has entered now the company as our CEO. So we we also have like now a double um, a double team of management for also um, yeah for also growing the company in the next two years in the field of chatbot. Um, I actually wanted to focus a little bit on on one of the points you mentioned, which is really like the female leadership and empowerment. I also saw that you wrote a book about female leadership. What are some of the the projects you're you're working on here? You mentioned um, that you coach female academics. So, what do you think are some of the challenges female academics face specifically, and how do you think they should overcome them? What is your main advice there? Um, stop downgrading <laughs> your own performance. Um, this is something I have um, already seen uh, while I was doing my, my PhD, uh, when I uh, had been to, to conferences and uh, uh, talked about my own research, that I observed that a lot of female academics were um, quite shy. They did not want to tell about the research. They always doubted um, how the research was going on and if it was good research. And so this, this is something you call downgrading. And in the book now, um, I, I focus on a lot of strategies, how you could um, empower yourself, but also how you can empower academics, um, business women, and also female entrepreneurs because um, we are absolutely underrepresented in uh, the, the system, not just in Germany and also in other countries, in almost all countries of the world. And the book um, puts perspective on two 
um, on two main points. The first is like describing how the situation is and, and how it should be. And on, uh, in the second part of the book, um, I, am, um, I am listing 130 um, attempts to, to solve it. For example, make, uh, yeah, give more trainings to, to female academics. Start building your network when you start your PhD or always apply for conference papers and just try it and, and send your, um, yeah, send your, uh, send your CV or um, and when you put it into a broader perspective, um, also coach the, um, the advisors, the professors that they have like a gender neutral view because it's something uh, that, that we have observed in our coachings and our trainings, but also what research has observed that uh, female researchers, they are graded um, not equally. Sometimes they get uh, worse grades than male researchers for their presentation because you just have other social ideas of what they represent when they are presenting their research. And uh, I want to, to change that from two perspectives. On the one hand, the individual perspective, empower um, the um, the researchers, the female researchers, but on the other hand, uh, it's like a structural perspective, also change the systems, change the stereotypes and change the people um, who, who bring, uh, bring people into academia. Yeah, that's, that's going to be the main challenge in the future, I suppose. But especially I can say for the Max Planck Society, for instance, there's going to be a big wave of, of retirements, which means there's a lot of open positions for um, females in, in leadership roles, which um, hopefully will slowly change the system uh, from there on. I hope very much. And so, so yeah, so for, this is, for example, um, a re retirement. This is a great, um, a great time for, uh, for women researchers, um, but, but they need to apply for the positions. This is something, of course, um, that, I, that I want to empower um, um, female researchers. We also do coaching for young professors, and we always have uh, these discussions that the, the young researchers that want, also other female researchers that want to be professor, um, then they read the, the job application and they doubt um, their own uh, the abilities. And this is something we need to overcome. And just, just send the application, believe in yourself, you will grow into it. Believing in yourself is always a, <laughs> a good, good tip for anyone. Um, and then I have a bit of a question that is something that I myself have been wondering, because nowadays there are so many trainings that are really specifically, uh, you know, leadership trainers, uh, training for females or, um, you know, presentation for, for women, present, presentation skills for women. What is your opinion on this? Because you, you mentioned that this is part of part of what you are also doing with the business and what you're mentioning as a solution. But in my opinion, wouldn't it make more sense to actually educate the men? So more leadership training for males and how to actually 
create diversity and, and include females and accept females in such roles rather than the other way around? What what do you think is the difference in a leadership course by itself versus leadership course for females, for instance? Um, you need both um, both approaches. This uh, what you described as leadership trainings for females. This is something what I call the individual approach because you you empower people to believe in themselves and to show their abilities to pre present themselves to, to communicate about themselves in a positive way. But this is uh, this is not enough because we see um, we see that in our in our work we see that in the research on gender stereotypes that a lot of um, barrier, barriers they still exist in the heads of people. So as as you said, um, educating men um, or like educating institutions, it, it's not just men. Yeah, it's also other women who do not. Um, um, who do not see that problem. So we, we need that structural approach as well. And this structural approach can be uh, fulfilled with um, educating whole teams, yeah, not just the men, the whole teams, educating other females who are already in like a leadership position um, to empower their, their um, teammates who are female to also go into um, to a leadership position. So this is uh, called shadowing or also like um, working with role models. And of course you need quotas, yeah, um, in, in, some, uh, um, in some institutions and not just quotas for the, for the C-level, but also quotas for other management levels. And you, you need gender neutral um, assignments, um, for example, in, I mean, in Germany, it's still used that you put your photo on um, a CV when you send it somewhere, or that you, when you're, for example, applying for um, for a uh, professorship, um, that you have to go into a committee with about ten persons. But um, there is no gender neutral. Um, assignment in in these uh, in these occasions. So we need a lot of structural changes um, to change that, and we also need individual changes. Um, so research shows that you need both at the same time. You cannot just say educate women or educate men. It just works if you educate um, both at the same time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then in terms of the the hiring that you mentioned. So also now a lot of companies and, and organizations, they're trying to hire more women to, in the end, increase the, or basically balance the, the, the genders in leadership roles. So make it 50-50%. But that obviously means that at this point in time, there would, these companies would have to hire more than 50% women or like hire more women compared to men at this point in time. And I've heard the discussion many times that some people agree, some people disagree um, in terms of saying that it's not really equality if you actually like intend to hire more women and therefore are more likely to hire women at this point in time. What is your, your uh, point of view there? Oh, this is, um, yes, that's a very, very tricky question because on the one hand, you can ask, yeah, is, is this a fair approach? On the other hand, you can ask, uh, has 
has been a fair approach for um, like um, having women um, for making women not visible in the system as it has been in the last uh, 100 years and to me um, it is not about um, asking if how, how, how should our hiring policy is but more asking um, what do the employees really want and a lot of men they also do not uh, want to fulfill the classical and um, the classical stereotype that uh, focuses on like the the working person and, and all only being um, like livable for for work they also have other interests or other representations of their self that they would like to um, to focus on and uh, I think that you should put a, a hiring policy more on the individual perspective that means um, that you that you hire persons um, with certain abilities and that you do not look on the gender that means uh, like 70% uh, female or 30% male. I think that you should like make a gender blind recruitment um, which looks on character traits, which looks on abilities and that you stop only um, only looking on on the uh, on the gender. Yeah, I think that's fair enough, and that can be extended, of course, also into um, nationality and race, depending on, of of course, visa requirements as well. <laughs> um, exactly, yeah. because um, we have a lot of um, diversity discussions going on. I mean, now the 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 race. And ethnicity discussion is, um, is 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 starting in Germany. Um, I mean, we, we, uh, the, the the community, um, the the community is all when it comes to gender is only is only discussing um, is only discussing male and female position. I mean, what is with other genders such as transgender or queer community? So we are very much in this binary thinking um, still. So there's a lot of work uh, coming for us um, deconstructing these classical roles of male or female of young and old of black and white and um, for me the uh, the the yeah one of the solutions is like open communication open communication about uh, prejudices about ideas um, of of fears because every every person has prejudices every person has fears and every person has wishes and if we start talking in a more open way about these things and also in teams yeah like okay what what do you think about more women in the team or what do you think about more men in the team or, or which words do you use to 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 talk about women which words do you use about uh, which words do you use when you talk about men is uh, is uh, an attempt to to make people um yeah to to get more consciousness into these discussions and um, um in my opinion our business world world lacks uh, consciousness and also openness yeah that's true and and one thing that you mentioned also is the the language of course it makes a big difference how something is phrased but in a language like german and it would be the same for a language like uh, spanish which has very well-defined um 
words for for gender that you use all the time is do you think that makes a difference whether that's english or german or spanish or or anything like that regardless of the culture that is obviously attached to it as well um when we compare the the languages um we see that uh that there is a connection between uh, the the structural um, the, the structural position of a language and the the stereotypes about women and men and of course German is a language that uses gender roles and also uses grammatical gender, whereas English um, on the other hand does not use that. I mean Spanish, as you mentioned, is also um, a language in which gender. Um, is, is very much represented and of course there is a connection between the language and the thinking and in English you can also see that there is um, a difference between um, between this uh, thing when, when you are uh, when you're addressing someone and you want to address the person in a direct way that means uh, that I can call you and mean uh, in the German du or sie I don't know if you have talked about this um, or thought about that early on, but in the in German, it's uh, it's a very um, uh, there is a very rough discussion going on whether to call someone in the business context in a direct or an indirect way, and so it comes uh, that uh, in Germany there is also um, yeah a lot of indirectness and people go into a lot of distance, whereas in the English. They don't have that in their language. They just use you, and so they they have got much more, um, yeah, a closer connection to each other by using this language. So yes, language shapes very much the stereotypes. Language shapes very much um, the actions of people, and that is why it is so important to train people using language. Yeah, I think that's very true and, and that makes a lot of sense as well. So then one last question that I kind of want to ask in, in the realm of, let's say, female empowerment and, and, and female representation in the workforce is really that one of the one of the, the main issues that I have encountered speaking to uh, friends, but also um, from our PhD net survey that we run every year is that Obviously, there's the difference between men and, men and women. Women um, are biologically, when they have children, it's more of a burden, right? You are pregnant, then you have to breastfeed and everything like that. And that is usually what what um, many people take. I don't want to say as an excuse, but many women, there's a drop off there in, in employment, either because there is a gap in the CV and then later on, they're not able to get into those, those roles higher up or, you know, they stop altogether or start working part time. Um, is that any, is that something that you address at all, um, in your company or in any of the projects? Yes, of course, um, because um, it's especially in uh, in academia, uh, the PhD is the classical drop off. While the um, so after the PhD, that, that is the classical um, drop off uh, when it comes to academic careers. Because um, during the PhD, a lot of uh, women become pregnant, and so they stop. Uh, they 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 stop um, their academic career, whereas men, when they become fathers, 
during their um, during their PhD, they do not stop um, doing um, or, or, or continuing their academic career. So we see um, pregnancy as an obstacle. And of course, we, um, we see in a lot of projects or when we talk to a lot of women, we see that um, there is still a lack of uh, family um, family attractiveness in institutions, uh, but, but also in universities. But for me, much more important is the obstacle in the mind. And this obstacle in the mind can be seen, for example, that, um, yeah, a lot of women, they, they stop making strategic decisions or they stop their leadership career um, about like one or two years before they, they get pregnant at all because they think okay now I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be pregnant in about one year or two years so I can stop my leadership career or or I can do my I can stop my strategic thinking I am I am okay there where I am and this is a perspective that I don't agree with because I see them or or I, I personally I, I, I do not have children um, but um, um, I I would like definitely uh, recommend not, to not see this pregnancy period as a um, as a dropout because then it may become a dropout. But but of course um, a lot of biographies of of female CEOs they show that that you can um, continue your leadership career afterwards and that you do not need to stop you're thinking that it is not um, possible to be a leader or an entrepreneur and to have um, to have a child so this is more like an um, like a mental obstacle that um, yeah that people um, men and women they have still very very classical ideas of how a family looks like and what pregnancy means pregnancy means like women um, withdrawing from their professional career and going back in the classical household and this is something that we definitely um, have to overcome and I always tell um, I always tell our um, our coaches that um, they should um, try a new picture uh, in their mind. For example, a woman like giving birth to a child, but still, um, yeah, for example, still um, having the young child with herself in the company or for example, uh, Jacinda Ardern, you, knew, uh, you know, the, the New Zealand prime minister, she also um, breastfed her child when, when she was in a um, parliament, um, parliament meeting or her, her man took the child while she was in the parliament meeting. So we need uh, these new images and we need these new um, mental, mental images. And so from my personal view, um, the, the thing that, that women stop the career when they get pregnant is something that they, de they decide for themselves. Today, when you want to, to go on your career, you have the you have the abilities um, in institutional settings to, to, to do it. Of course, sometimes you have to ask for it or you, you have to demand it. And um, second, you have to have an equal partnership with the father or the mother of the, um, yeah, of, uh, of the baby and make it clear that it is a teamwork and not that 
someone is stopping her or his career for it. So this also needs a lot of communication. Now we are again in this thing. It needs a lot of communication about fears, about prejudices, about, uh, about hopes, and then just try it and go your own way. Sometimes you have to go your own way. You don't have footsteps. You don't have role models to look at, but just do it. Just do it. That, 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 is, that is the bottom line of this story. Just do it. So one question I wanted to ask is, um, what does your personal, like your day-to-day -day look like um, in the job? Like what are some of the things you really love and what are some of the things that you might not like so much? <laughs> Very good question. Um, I don't like getting up early. And this was, <laughs> yes, and this was also um, one big challenge for me when I went uh, in, in, in earlier jobs. So I do not do this anymore. I get up when I want. And this is uh, at nine o'clock. Then I read um, my personal news or also like news that I'm interested in for getting inspiration for the day. Then I head to, to the office um, at 10 o'clock. And um, yes, now then the, depend, the day depends on what my, um, yeah, what my agenda is. Sometimes I have appointments with, with customers or I have a, a workshop or I have, um, I have another discussion with uh with students or of course with the employees um for like uh looking what they are doing um but i personally enjoy times of about one or two hours when i am on my own in my my office i have got a uh, room for for myself like like a, a separate office this is very important for me because i need the silence for thinking for reorganizing my thoughts and for writing i i still love writing texts and we we, we write a lot of texts in our business and I, some texts i i do still write myself i also have um, a column i get, gave a lot of interviews also in writing um and i i do this um by myself then i have business lunches um this is something i also quite like um and yes you also asked me what i don't like actually um i don't like network um uh, network events although you might not uh think that but um i found it sometimes very stressful to be on a lot of networking events because everyone selling something you're always always selling something uh for yourself you're always selling your personality of course a bit because i'm i'm the ceo i am the person who makes sales in our team and uh, yes sometimes you have bad days and you're not really in the mood but you still have to be there and you always have to be full there um and uh, secondly um i do do not like talking um, um, to in front of a lot of a lot of people. <laughs> you, you also might not think that because I'm I'm doing this regularly. I give a lot of talks, but actually um, it is something that is not on my um, on my wow list because I um, I'm more like an introvert person, and um, this is always also. Um, is uh, is very um yeah it, it, i need i need a lot of power to do that and I'm, i'm quite exhausted after it yeah so when i like speak for about 45 minutes that's the, the time um of my my talks and i'm very very tired after it and i feel that i have to um that, that i have to get new energy and then 
Um, yes, I, I need time for, for myself again and in, 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 in isolation. And of course, after talks, yeah, this is not possible. You have to talk to a lot of other people. And then you have to make, again, business connections that I'm happy then when I go to bed, when I, uh, when I can withdraw to myself. Yes, that, that was, this is what my, my day looks like. Mostly I, I leave my, my office um, between six, uh, six and seven o'clock. I, I really watch myself and also the rest of the team to not work too much because I do not believe it's healthy and I want my team to, to, to still be there in one or two years. And I also want to, to have, um, yes, I, I also want to have some other parts in my life that I'm doing. So um, I'm active in um, a lot of commissions um, for example, at the University of Mannheim or um, from Baden-Württemberg Stiftung. So this is also things that I'm that I'm doing, and this is mental work that is really, um, yeah, that is exhausting and, and it needs time. So sometimes people think, um, especially when you are creative, you're just sitting somewhere and having a uh, a nice time, <laughs> but yeah. Thinking is very hard work. I mean, you know that as researchers, but uh, sometimes business people, they, they don't really know that. Thinking is hard work indeed. It's true. And, and it's very interesting that you say that, because I, I, it's not the first time that I hear that many people indicate networking is very important. But I hate I hate doing it, and I I hate talking to people, and it leaves me very tired afterwards. It's it's very interesting that this seems to be a shared um, <laughs> a shared sentiment between between uh, many. Yeah, it is t totally. I mean, this is why we chose researchers um, research as our um, yeah as our topic because um, for me the best time. Um, is is like um, sitting somewhere uh, with my coffee and a cat and my laptop, yeah, with no one else. <laughs> so, um, yeah, unfortunately, my my cat died, but still, I, I love my cappuccino. I love the laptop, and this is everything I need for my work. And there's many there's many homeless kittens out there waiting for you to pick them up. Yes, I know, I know. Then I'm, I'm still dreaming for having a cat cafe with. Uh, so, so we we bought this is some some last thing that I I mentioned. Um, we 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 bought another company. So like I am investor myself now. <laughs> I couldn't believe it because um I I was um, not interested in having like um, investments in my own company. Now I am an investor um, myself in a CSR startup because they wanted it and that's, that's fine. That is some nice experience um, for me as well. Um, but my, my big dream is um, in yeah, a few years like investing or like having a cat cafe where homeless kittens um, can get into touch with, uh, with customers and have just like nice coffee and reading area. So this is something like a little side project <laughs> for me. <laughs> I know that is exactly my side project as well. That's just something that if nothing works out or even if everything works out, like that is something I want to accomplish in my life is have a cat cafe and, and rescue kittens. <laughs> well, okay, this is amazing. So I think we are, we, we are the first business partner. Yeah, exactly. This is the day that the deal is being made. 
<laughs> okay, how, how easy is networking? <laughs> so, but what was so cool um, to talk to you, and the Keith, uh, thank yeah, you so sure. much for your interest. Um, I hope the information was clear for the, um, for the community. I'm, I'm, I'm open to, to other events like that, to questions, um, to everything. Yeah, I, I would even like talk in front of your community. If you say, hey, this is important, um, I can come. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. It, it's been really interesting and really enlightening. I learned so much today and I hope everyone else did as well. <laughs> That's it for our interview today. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share, and follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at Career Navigators to be updated with new and upcoming episodes and for more information. If you have questions or suggestions, or if you have any interesting career stories we can all learn from, please reach out on social media or send us an email at careernavigators.pod at gmail.com. I would like to thank Johan Frieden for making our logo, Lindsay Baltima for help with social media and production, Gustavo Cariso for editing, mixing, and sound design. That's it for me. Catch you in two weeks. Later, navigators. <laughs>